Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sports. I'm Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, and this week's guest is Amy Trask, the former CEO of the Raiders, author, CBS football analyst, and current chair of the board for the Big Three. She was the first female executive of any NFL team, and her book, You Negotiate Like a Girl, uh, details Amy's experiences as the first female executive in the league. She is a prolific tweeter, engaging fans and sports professionals alike on a daily basis about the industry. She talks to me about everything, her time at the Raiders, the big three, and ice cream, because she loves ice cream. We had a great time talking, and I can't wait for you all to hear. You know, rating and reviewing the podcast not only helps us get heard by more people, but it also makes me feel good. So this week, I'm going to give away one copy of Amy Trask's book. In order to enter, please rate and review LTPF on your podcatcher, um, preferably on Apple Podcasts. Take a screenshot and then email that screenshot to ltpfpod at gmail.com by 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday, March 6, 2018. One winner will be chosen from all timely received entries. And if you have previously rated and reviewed LTPF, just take a screenshot of your review and email it to me. And then make sure you are subscribing, rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. And I finally want to thank... Um, my friends at Michigan State University's College of Law, their International Law Review for hosting me at their sports symposium, sports law symposium, excuse me, last weekend. And the women of Eisenberg at UMass um, for hosting me at their event. Um, I had a great time at both and hope that everyone keeps in touch. I'd like to welcome my guest, former Raiders CEO, Amy Trask. Hi, Amy. Well, hello, Bobby Sue. How are you? Oh, I am great. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing well uh, across the country from you. Yes, yes, you are. Did you um, have your usual breakfast today? You know, some people call it breakfast. I call it, you know, a meal at any time. And, and <laughs> yes, I've enjoyed ice cream a few times already today. <laughs> I think that's one of my favorite things about you. Is your love of ice cream? Um, <laughs> it's a dairy product, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's perfectly fine, and you know it's all fancy now, so you can go organic, and it can be from like grass-fed cows, and it, you know, so, so it's someone, purely a health food. Some someone tweeted me something today that said cows eat grass, ice cream is made from milk, cows make milk, they eat grass. Really, Amy, it's just salad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that sounds about right. I like it, whoever that is. Um, I'm so happy to have you on because quite obviously for my audience, you are probably uh, someone that they all look up to after your time with the Raiders as their CEO. Um, and then, you know, some of the big moves you've been making in the past year or two with uh, the big three and then being on CBS. So you know, thank you again for being on. I really appreciate it. Well, you're very, very gracious. It's it's a privilege and a pleasure to join you, and and I appreciate the opportunity to speak. Um, you know, we don't. Well, first of all, I have to say, I tried to grab my book, your book, Negotiate Like a Girl, um, and and flip through it again to to get some tidbits, and then I realized. One of my former colleagues, who is now with a different team, never returned my book. So, Alexandra, uh -oh. if you're listening, I'm going to be in Atlanta in like two weeks. I want it back. <laughs> um, but it, it was it's such a good book. And I wonder if you could talk about the process of writing it and um, how you teamed up. How did you and Mike get together to with him to help with the writing? Well, um, the, uh, I'll answer that in reverse order. I had <laughs> that I wanted to write a book. I love to write. I really, really love to write. But I knew that I needed to work with an extraordinarily talented, terrific person who could help me understand how to write a book because I'd certainly never done anything like that before. 
And I was introduced to Mike by Jim Trotter. And I, when I called Mike to ask him if he would do me the tremendous, tremendous honor of working with me on the book, I, it felt like I was calling to propose marriage to someone. <laughs> I mustered all my nerve up and I, I stumbled and I hemmed and I hawed and he did me the great, great honor of, of helping me in every regard. Um, he's actually the person who came up with the title of the book. I had something very dry and boring in mind. And Mike said to me, well, you know, Amy, you've recounted this story about when someone says to you, you negotiate like a girl, that would be a great title for the book. And I said, um, no, 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 no. In typical Amy fashion, no, no, no. Because I had had um, this idea of something far more serious. And the more I thought about it, I thought, damn, he's right. And I, I let him know. I said, you know what? You're right. As for the process itself, I wrote the book at the same time a dear friend of mine wrote his book. And we had two entirely different processes. He took the gentleman working with him down to Mexico and they sat in Mexico for two weeks and had a ton of tequila and he shared all his stories into a tape recorder. <laughs> I, locked my, I locked myself in the bedroom and wrote 74,000 words, which I just kept sending the mic and sending the mic and sending oh my mic. Gosh. And, at one, and at one point, my husband looked at me and said, maybe you should have tried the whole Mexico tequila approach because it would have been a lot more relaxing in this house. Um, <laughs> but Mike did me the great honor of, of making it all into a book and it was wonderful working with him. Uh, he's really sweet. He's been a, a big supporter of me with the podcast. Um, Oh, that's and, terrific. Yeah, yeah. We we've become we became Twitter buddies. Um and so it's it's been really really cool and he keeps poking me about getting you on. I'm like, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting until it like seems like I should reach out. <laughs> um you went to UC Berkeley for undergrad, uh and poly, you were a poli sci major. How did what led you to make the decision to go there? And why poli-sci? Well, um, you know, I, I loved political science and, and studied it at Cal, as you mentioned. And um, that didn't strike me at all as a hard decision. The decision that was harder was when I was getting ready to graduate. And I decided, you know, what did I want to do next? And um, look, I recognized that I had just a tremendous, tremendous privilege of parents who um, their number one goal that they agreed upon when they got married was to save all the money that they could so they could educate their children to the heart's desire of their children. And, you know, when my mom and dad got married, they had nothing, but they made quite a nice life for themselves. And the reason I share that is their articulated priority when they got married was whatever they earned, whatever they accomplished, their number one goal was to provide us with education. And so the reason I share all of that, Bobby Sue, is I do recognize what a tremendous, tremendous privilege I had in that regard and that not everybody has that privilege. I'm not at all insensitive to that. And my parents made educating the three of us their priority. So when I was getting ready to graduate Cal, I knew that graduate school was an option for me. And I had to make the decision do I want to pursue an advanced degree, um, a doctoral degree in political science, or do I want to do something else? And I thought it through and thought as much as I would enjoy getting a doctorate in political science, what was I really going to do with that? Was I going to teach? Was I willing to you know, move around the country and go wherever there might be a teaching job available? And I thought it through and realized I didn't want to do that. And I thought I really, really, really wanted to go into business. And so I opted for law school, which seemed like an interesting blend of what I had studied as an undergrad. And I never, ever, ever intended to be a lawyer. I went to law school to get the additional education as a background for business. And it did just that for me. You, um, was it your, in between your first and second year of law school that you interned with the Raiders? Uh, it was, I think at the beginning of my second year, I don't remember exactly, but you're right around. I don't remember whether I contacted the Raiders at the end of my first year or the beginning of my second. And I really should remember that. But I remember walking through law school and listening to all these 
students that were a bit ahead of me talking about internships and externships and things like that. And I thought, well, that's kind of neat. And um, so I had the year I graduated from Cal and moved back to Los Angeles was the year that the Raiders ultimately ended up in Los Angeles. The team had tried to move down before Al had tried to move the team, but the court had ordered it back. Ultimately, they came down to Los Angeles the same year I graduated Cal and came home to Los Angeles. And I thought, wow, my favorite team moving at the same time I am. And I contacted the organization about doing an internship and and had the great fortune of, of being able to do one. Uh, how many times did you have to contact them before they said yes? Oh, only once. Um, I called up the, I, the receptionist answered. I said, I'd like to talk to someone about doing an internship. They put me through to a gentleman who said kind of gruffly, but very directly, well, what's that? What's an <laughs> and I said, well, I would work for you and you wouldn't pay me. He said, well, okay, come on down. <laughs> and he put me in touch with the gentleman there who was the, um, the team had one person on its legal staff and they put, he put me in touch with him, this gentleman who engaged me, if you will, as an intern. And, and that's how it all began. It's kind of amazing that they even had somebody in house at that point in time from a legal standpoint, because there's, I mean, there's still, I think one team in the league that doesn't have in-house counsel. Well, I mean, look, this was quite a a long time ago. I did my internship in the roughly 83. It was either, it was in 83. I just don't remember if it was the beginning of 83, but it was, you know, in roughly 1983. And I did it sort of 83, 84, and a little bit into 85. It was a long time ago, Bobby Sue. Yeah. I mean, and it's like I'm saying, it's, you know, there weren't many in-house sports lawyers at the time, I think. Which is pretty fantastic. I would love fantastic. to say I was 12 at the time, but that would be. <laughs> well, you know, I think um, you've, you've seemed to have always made moves um, and been brave about it. Well, and none of it was calculated. Um, you know, the best advice I've ever received in my whole life was advice my mother gave me um, you know, the entire time I was growing up and as only moms can do, well, maybe not only moms, but as moms often do, she repeated it over and over and over again to the point where every time she would share this advice, I would roll my eyes. Um, but it was the best advice I've received in my whole life. It was to thine own self be true. Now as a little aside, I didn't know until I was almost out of college that she was actually quoting Shakespeare. I thought she'd invented that. But um, nothing I've done, you know, I, people ask me, you know, what was my work plan? What was my, my strategy? I didn't have one. Um, I, I joined the organization as an intern. I was thrilled to be an intern. I was thrilled to be part of the organization. And if ultimately I was added full time and that job was not in the legal department, it was somewhere else, that would have been fine too. I was just, if I had been told that my responsibility was to pick up the Gatorade cups on the side of the field, um, you know, when players drink their Gatorade and throw them on the grass um, (laughs) during the game, well, then I would have been honored and thrilled for that to be my job. How did you fall in love with sports? Uh, I don't know that I fell in love with all sports. Um, I fell in love with football, with the game of football when I was in junior high. It's a very, very cerebral game. Uh, It's, you know, and I've, I've been likening it since, well, for decades and decades and decades, since well before I joined the team. It's like a game of chess played by very, very large, very fast, very strong men who are akin to chess pieces, if you will. There's a very, very cerebral component to football. Um, What are my matchups? How do my linebackers match up with your running backs? How do, um, you know, how am I going to block your defenders? How am I going to get to your quarterback? It's a very intellectual game of matchups, and I just fell in love with the game. Were your parents and siblings big fans of football at that time as well? Nope. Nope. Um, 
my, I was, I was, it, I was it. I mean, look, I grew up in a family where sure they enjoyed watching the Super Bowl and either had or went to a Super Bowl party, um, you know, once a year for the Super Bowl, but not avid, avid fans. They would be going out to do something on a Sunday and I'd be the one saying, yeah, okay, go on. I just want to stay home and watch the game. Oh my gosh. So when you ultimately got a job at the Raiders, they're like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> um, in the sense that, you know, I, I will articulate it slightly differently. They were thrilled for me that I was getting to do something that had been my dream and that I wished to accomplish. Um, and the magnificent, magnificent parents who, from the time I joined the organization, bought season tickets, oh. went to every game, became season ticket holders. But they did that not because they particularly cared about the game. They did that for me. That's really sweet. That's really, really cute. Um, you were at a firm for a couple of years. How excited were you to leave firm life? Um, I think it was about, I think it was about a year, a year, maybe a year and a half. Um, I'm very excited. Look, I never, I, I went to law school, never, ever, ever, ever intending to practice law. And, um, I never, ever was going to be a litigator or even know where the courthouse was. And, and um, frankly, until I became a witness in the NFL Raider litigation, I didn't. Um, but the background I got in that year or year and a half at a law firm was tremendous. I was a transactional lawyer and I was mentored, tutored, um, taught by some really, really, really fine lawyers about drafting contracts and reviewing contracts and, and um, understanding how to do that well. So it, it was a very, very valuable background, although I didn't really necessarily appreciate it as much as I should have at the time. Well, I think, I think especially when you know that that's not what you want long-term, right? It, you know, during the time that you're there, you can feel a little misplaced, I think. Um, I'm fortunate that I, I went straight in house, not with the team that took me about six or seven years to get to, but, um, I went straight in house and never had to deal with billable hours, which makes me oh, happy. Oh <laughs> my God. Time sheets. And the, yeah, that really, really is just, I'm going to use a very, very, very technical word right now. Yucky. Um, <laughs> just yucky. <laughs> After that, you rejoined your Raiders. What were you doing when you first got there? Um, absolutely anything I was asked to do. Uh, I was working on contracts, although not player contracts. When I say contracts, people assume um, player agreements, and, and that wasn't the case. The player contracts are collectively bargained, and really they're just fill in the blanks. So the people negotiating those deals would fill in the blanks um, with you know number of years and compensation. And I would get involved from time to time if there was a very um, sort of different provision we wanted to add or an addendum that needed to be drafted. But I was working on agreements, um, radio agreements, sponsorship agreements, business contracts, things of that nature. But I was also learning the business itself and, and um, doing everything I could to help the team in any way I could. On Saturdays, um, when I would go into the office, if I didn't have a lot of um, work on my plate, so to speak, in other words, work specific to me that a lawyer needed to do, one of my favorite things to do was go in the ticket office and I would alphabetize the will call envelopes. Oh my gosh. That's really a good experience for everyone, actually, I think. Although I don't think we have that many will call anymore um, from what I can tell. But that it's such a good way, you know, even just doing something a little like that to get to know the business. I've often told people who want to know about working for a team as an attorney, um, you know, what the most important things are. And from my perspective, it's learn everything you can about how the business works. Absolutely. And I would add to that only learn absolutely everything. And by the way, that transcends sports, whatever business one works for, one should learn absolutely everything possible and imaginable about that business um, so that one can help in every single regard. So I would add only to what you said, um, and you stated it beautifully, learn everything you can. I would add and contribute in any way you can. 
And if contributing means alphabetizing the will call envelopes, and I get it, there's no will call envelopes anymore. (laughs) um, Well, then do that. And if doing everything you can means, um, you know, being available to assist anyone in any way that advances the interests of the team, do that. When you are part of a business, you are part of a team. And when that business is a team, well, it's even more specific. You're part of a team. Do whatever you can to help your team win. As um, you were there for about 10 years before you were moved up to CEO, is that correct? You know, I don't even remember. Um, Titles have never been of any significance to me. I I think, you know, I don't don't think titles are important. So I don't remember. Um, I joined the organization as an intern, as we discussed in the 83, 84 timeframe. I joined full-time, full-time as an employee in 87. And so when you combine my internship and my full-time employment or my, my, um, yeah, I guess my full-time, it was almost, almost 30 years. And I don't remember how, you know, when, when, what happened, happened. There are stories about, and I think, so I'm from Massachusetts, which makes it clear what news we get around there. (laughs) Um, And I'm not so sure that I was paying attention as much as I do now to news about other organizations. And, um, but there are stories out there that your organization was kind of a renegade organization and it just did what they wanted to do. And, um, and the fans loved it. I think to a great extent, that's true. And, and look, I think one needs look no further than the fact that, um, you know, Al Davis and look, I understand that people that are listening to this podcast, some will love the Raiders, some will hate the Raiders, some admired and respected Al, some couldn't stand Al, but if anyone is being intellectually honest, you know, they have to acknowledge that this is a man who hired the first Hispanic head coach. Um, and I'm doing this in order of chronology, not in order of importance, because Tom and Art were both far more important than I. But he hired Tom Flores as a head coach. Then he hired me as, as a female, as a, a front office executive, a woman. Then he hired Art Shell. He hired without regard to race gender, ethnicity, religion, or any other individuality, which has no bearing whatsoever on whether someone can do a job. Um, And he did that decades and decades and decades before anyone else thought about issues of that nature. So, you know, look, that was a vision. If people want to say renegade, well then sign me up because Mm -hmm. I was a beneficiary of that renegade vision. And yeah, you know, he did things his way. And as I said, I was a beneficiary of his vision in that regard. Your fans are known to be some of the most diehard fans in the country. I'm sure you're going to say they are the most. Um, and they had a fun little nickname for you. Can you tell us about that and where it came from? Sure. Um, I, I really have to credit Mike Silver, now of the NFL Network, oh, formerly at that time <laughs> of Sports Illustrated for that nickname. He wrote an article um, on me for Sports Illustrated many years ago. And in that article, uh, someone, um, I don't remember whether it was a league office executive or an executive from another team, said, you know, she's referred to as the princess of darkness. And it was very, very clear from the context that was not intended as a compliment. <laughs> well, I embraced it. Raider Nation embraced it. We loved it. So kind of ha-ha on the guy who shared that, thinking it, that, that it was a nickname that, that was not complimentary. I think it's a great nickname. Raider Nation thinks it's a great nickname. I love it. I cherish it. I will always cherish it. And frankly, I hope that when I say it, you know, to you or anyone else, people are just a little bit scared. <laughs> um, I'm not a little scared of you. I will say that. Damn. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all the wowies that, uh, that kind of take away. And, 
Yeah. And that I got from my mother as well. And the entire time growing up, every time my mom would say, wowee, which she said and still all the time, um, I just thought, what a weird word. And somewhere over the course of my life, I did what so many of us do. We turn into our mothers. <laughs> and so now I say wowee all the time. <laughs> now, I do think that if I caught one of your other verbal habits, that maybe I would be scared. Um, you're not afraid to to throw down an F-bomb when need be. And that probably came in handy working with Al. Well, um, look, you know, I do. I swear a lot. I try not to do really, really try not to do it on on, on television. And <laughs> so far, I, I have not made that mistake. And um, I'm, I have this just tremendous privilege and pleasure of being part of the CBS Sports Network team. And um, I've, I've always tried to be very, very cautious about that. There's only been one instance in five years where one of my colleagues on set has looked like he's been ready to jump across and save me from myself thinking I might do it, but I haven't. <laughs> um, I do. I do. I, I, you know, I'm often told I, I talk like a truck driver or a sailor and other people interject that that's insulting to truck drivers or sailors. <laughs> I, you know, look, I swear it's, it's not something to brag about. I also don't think it's the end of the world. It, it's football, you know, in football, people swear and, and they're just words, you know, what's that sticks and stones. So yeah, I swore and, um, you know, I still do. I am similar. Uh, I try not to, but it doesn't work very well for me. But um, yeah, so um, can you tell the story about uh, being asked to get someone coffee while at a, I think it was a, a two per meeting? Yeah, it was my very, very first owner's meeting. And again, this was back in 19, you know, the late 80s, mid to late 80s. It was my first owner's meeting. And now we have all these terrific discussions about women in the NFL, women in sports. Well, back then it wasn't women. It was women. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I, I, it was my first owner's meeting that I'd ever attended. And it was what you just described as a two per club meeting, meaning that the team owner could attend and bring one person um, from the organization with him. And Al brought me and I was, you know, very excited and, and you know, kind of nervous. And so I got down to the room very early and realized immediately that at the very back of the conference room uh, or the ballroom where all the tables were set up, there was coffee and, and breakfast snacks and people were milling about. So I went over and was milling about and helped myself to some coffee and put it down. And all of a sudden, a man said to me, you know, would you get me some coffee? And I just immediately decided without, it didn't take me but a second to think I'm going to have some fun with this. <laughs> so I looked at him and I said, sure. How do you take that? Because Bobby Sue, I knew that within a matter of moments, the meeting would be called to order and he would see me walking to the table and sitting down um, at, at the table with the owners and the, the two per club meeting uh, attendees. So I said, sure. How do you take that? And um, I got him his coffee and then the meeting was called to order and the look on his face when he saw me walk in. Oh, and, and by the way, I should add, I was the only woman there, not on the catering staff of the hotel. So clearly, you know, I don't believe he asked me thinking I was with the team. I think he asked me just assuming, well, she's a woman, she's with the hotel catering staff. Um, I handled it in the manner, you know, to thine own self be true. I thought this is going to be hilarious. I'm going to get him his coffee. He's going to all of a sudden realize I'm an attendee at the meeting and he is going to feel awkward, embarrassed, ill at ease. I didn't know how he'd feel, but I thought I'm going to have fun with this. <laughs> and you know what? I did have fun with it. And when I saw the look on his face, I just started laughing. And ultimately he became one of my staunchest and fiercest supporters. He encouraged me throughout my career. He supported me. We became very close friends. Um, periodically he would ask me how I wanted my coffee. I would regularly remind him he still owed me a tip from when I got him his <laughs> coffee. And I've been, I've been criticized by a lot of women I respect for the manner in which I handled that. 
um, because they said, you know, you should have taken a moment to really explain to him why what he did was inappropriate. And I thought, you know what? I handled it in a manner I thought was pretty darn effective. Yeah. I mean, I think for the time uh, when that occurred, you know, your other option would have basically been to get really, really angry. And uh, that might have been my reaction. Uh, but you well, handled and it. Everybody gets to, yeah. And that's sort of the point. We all get to handle things in the manner that we believe best for us. Um, nobody should tell anyone that the manner in which he or she chooses to handle a situation is right or wrong. Right. And, and a situation of that nature, right. I should say. And I think, you know, the point was clearly made without having to have right. that discussion. Right. So um, I've actually, I have the opposite reaction to those women. And, you know, I, I think what the way you handled it probably would, was more effective than, well, I, and I, I had a good time. So, um, one of, I'm not going to ask you to tell every story that's in your book, but there's another, Please, one. I was about to say, I was about to say, um, I, I just, I, I can't recap everyone. Um, it's, it's a fun trip down memory lane, but I know some of these are very, very long stories and I'm, I'm not going to bore your listeners by recapping. <laughs> right. There's only one other one I want to ask you about because it's actually something I didn't know about. And I ran to work the next day to ask our, um, our cap guy <laughs> if this actually happens. And it's the race for the seats. And what did he say? He started laughing. He said, yes, they still do that. Isn't that crazy? I'll make it very, very brief. There's a lot more detail in the book. But um, yes, when you attend league meetings, people, there's a lot of, we'll just leave it at this. There's jockeying for position to get the seat that each team wants for the meetings. And I never for the life of me understood why we just didn't do name cards. In other <laughs> words, if, if everybody's going to be jockeying to get the seat that that team wants, well, why not just do name tags? But my, my name tag idea was never adopted. <laughs> I hope this next one's a little easier, though. How okay, did, good. I like the easy one. <laughs> How did you become friends with Ice Cube? Oh, Ice Cube, Raider fan. <laughs> I met him through the Raiders. Um, a very, very, look, I have been um, an Ice Cube and an NWA fan since the time NWA was formed. I think Ice Cube is um, not simply one of the best musical artists of my generation or our generation, but of all generations. I think he is just an absolutely spectacular, brilliant, brilliant musical artist. And I had the great, great, great fortune of meeting him through the Raiders. How, how did discussions start about you joining the Big Three? Well, Ice Cube and his business partner, longtime, longtime trusted friend and business partner, uh, Jeff Quantnitz, had a vision, a dream of this three-on-three half-court basketball uh, league with, with these magnificent, magnificent former players who Jeff and Ice Cube knew could still play at an extraordinarily competitive level. And as I said, these two men, it was a vision, it was a dream, and they approached me about joining them, and I did, and we just finished our first season. People asked me, you know, did the season meet your expectations, exceed your expectations? And when I say your, I mean collectively our, everybody associated with the big three. And my answer is, it exceeded everybody's expectations except ours. We knew it would be successful. We believed it would be successful. And now going into season two, the games will be at prime time. We'll be playing on Friday night and they'll all be televised live. And we're getting ready for season two. Yeah, I saw that. So you, um, you all signed a deal with Fox for Friday nights for season two, which is fantastic. Right. Um, roughly half the games will be on Fox. The other half, roughly half, it's almost half-half will be on FS1 and they'll all be live and they'll be on Friday nights. And I have to be careful not to announce any names that we <laughs> haven't officially announced yet, 
but, you know, guys like Drew Gooden, Carlos Boozer, Glenn, you know, Big Baby um, have signed on as co-captains. We've got 10 new players who've confirmed for the draft and the combine. And what's interesting is we're not going out and soliciting these guys. These guys are saying, hey, I want in. I want in. And we're going to have some new announcements to add to that soon. Oh, that's fantastic. Do you um, televise the combine or the draft? Um, yeah, thanks for asking that. We are going to be doing that. We're going to be doing, we're going to be televising some of all of that uh, this spring. Very cool. One of the things I've noticed about the league is um, the accessibility to players and coaches that the fans um, have. Do you think that's one of the biggest differentiators for you all and, you know, your average? sports league and um can you talk a little bit about that i do think it is one of the biggest differentiators and i'm smiling ear to ear if you could see me right now you'd see me <laughs> smiling and the reason i'm smiling is because i'm delighted that you recognize that and i'm not at all surprised that given your background and your profession that you did recognize that in other words it makes all the sense in the world to me that you recognize that um and yes we not only are our players and our coaches accessible, we encourage our fans, in particular kids, to take advantage of that access. I'll tell you a funny moment last year. I think it was our first game in Barclays. Yeah, I think it was our first game. Um, and Charles Oakley's coaching. And it's at halftime during a game he's coaching because, of course, we have four games every, every event. If you come to the arena, you're seeing four games. And at halftime not between his game and another game, but at halftime of his game, I see these two little boys, really little boys, starting to approach him. He's in the middle <laughs> of coaching his team, and these two little boys are approaching Charles Oakley with their programs to be signed. And I'm watching this from courtside thinking, okay, what's going to happen? Should I go over there? Should I tell these little boys, just wait till the end of the game? Oakley does not miss a beat. He sees the little boys approaching. He reaches out. He grabs their programs, graciously signs them, interacts with the little boys, and goes back to coaching his game. <laughs> it was really fun to watch. That's fantastic. I think it's, it's one of the things that I know um, really brings fans to a game or a, you know, a particular league or a particular player, right, is that that interaction. I know for us, we have, we have a ton of access, particularly during spring training. We, I mean, not spring training. Oh my gosh. Training camp. Um, spring training starts next week down here. That's why I'm thinking that. Uh, but it's funny. Excuse me for one moment. <laughs> it's funny that you actually made the slip and said spring training instead of training camp, because boy, oh boy, it was hard for me to adopt, you know, the, the basketball lingo, having spent those on oh, the sure. NFL. So all last season, you should have seen the expressions on all my new teammates' faces <laughs> when I would refer to it as the sideline instead of, uh, well, I see you on the sideline, um, and that's courtside. And I constantly, I mean, it took me the entire season before I stopped saying kickoff and started saying tip-off. So I feel you. Oh, that's amazing. Um yeah, I, you know, we pitchers and catchers report next week down here. So I, I think I have baseball on the mind, but spring training, see, I just did it again. Training camp for us um, is a real, we do so much during training camp for our fans and they have That's so much great. access that it makes me so happy to see the little ones in particular, the itty bitties that get uh, so excited. Uh, oh, that. That's so funny. I call them itty bitties as well or inchy pinchies. Oh. Um, and I used to, and I, I love that as well. And that was one of the biggest, biggest treats for me. And I, I still get the hugest kick out of it when Raider fans will tweet pictures that they took of me at training camp hanging out with them and say, oh, Amy, remember when you did this for my kids? Or, oh, Amy, remember, you know, I remember when you made sure that, that we got to meet so-and-so at training camp. And, and, and I love that, especially for, as you said, the itty bitties. Yeah, it's, it, it's fun to realize that you are kind of helping make a kid's dream come true or even an adult. You know, we forget yep. how, 
how kids of all ages. Yeah, we forget how rare it is to go to games, uh, especially when you're talking football, right? right? Um, uh, most people will never go to a game in their life. Uh, there's just not enough of them, <laughs> and it it, uh, it really has an impact on on their fandom, and then you know just kind of on on their life. I think. I agree. Um, and, and it's a lot of fun. And as, as seriously as those of us in the business take every single aspect of the business, it's also important to remember perspective. I'm a big, big, big fan of keeping things in perspective. And so I would get so, um, you know, if there was ever a moment where someone on staff would start to get, you know, his hackles up about, you know, why are there kids here? Or I don't have, I'd remind them, this is this is why they love us. We we need to do this for our fans. It's important. Yeah, it, I mean, and whenever I have the opportunity to tour someone around our facilities or get sideline passes for somebody who's visiting or something, it just reminds you again of how fortunate we are to be in the positions that we're in that we Absolutely. can almost forget how special it is and it makes it all exciting all over again. Be- beautifully stated and it's um you can offer people a moment that can have an impact on a life i mean mm-hmm. when charles barkley took a moment in game to turn to those little boys and share a word with them i think they're going to remember that and you know it, it, you can have an impact on kids and on on kids of all ages and i i love this conversation <laughs> um I had read that there were talks about expanding the big three. Is that happening? We may do that. Um, It's not going to be for this season, but there are a lot of ongoing discussions of that nature. And by expanding both the number of teams and thus the number of players and also locations, Mm -hmm. um, there's tremendous, tremendous enthusiasm by a lot of countries around the world to us bringing the big three um, to those countries and, and playing our games internationally. Look, when I joined the big three and, you know, obviously, you know, once again, my background is, is football. When I joined big three, I understood how popular and beloved three on three half court basketball is in this country. I mean, heck I live close to the Venice boardwalk. There's three-on-three being played there 24 hours a day. What I didn't have as good a sense of is how beloved this game is around the world. Three-on-three half-court basketball is played around the world. And so, yes, there may be not only expansion in terms of the number of teams and thus the number of players, but where we play the games. What are some of the technology advances you all are using to to get the game, the league out there more and in front of different eyes. Are you using any of those social media channels? We are, and we will be doing a lot more of that this season. Um, I can't spill the beans on something, but there's going to be a lot more options to see content above and beyond what people saw last year. And then I will also say, even though this is not the technology to which you were referring, one of my favorite things we did last year was we mic'd people up on court during the games. And so we mic'd up officials and we mic'd up players. And I, you know, our fans enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. Um, so we're, you know, the other thing about, about big three is the big three is if we want to change something, we just change it. So, you know, all my years in the NFL where if you wanted to change a rule or a procedure or a policy, oh, you had to go to committee and have meetings and then it goes to six more committees and then you have votes and then you have committee votes and you have ownership votes. We want to change something. We sit down, we change it. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah, it must be must be really fun being able to be that nimble right now. and it it allows you to you know use what works and get rid of what doesn't in a in much more effective manner. Yep. Um, 
There's one other thing that you are very involved with that makes my heart really, really happy. And that's Tony LaRusso's oh, animal. Can I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, can I guess? Can I guess? Is it animal rescue? I am yeah. very, very passionate about animal rescue. Um, I, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted no, you. No, go. I, I hoping, <laughs> uh, no, I just, I am very, very, very passionate about animal rescue. Um, I, there are, and I, I'm going to choke up, and I'm, if you could see me now, the tears are starting to form in my eyes. There are dogs and cats sitting in cages right now that are going to be exterminated if people don't give them homes. So when people go out and buy a dog, you know, that encourages people to continue to breed dogs, it just tears my heart apart. Um, and rescue animals know you've rescued them. We have a saying at ARF, people rescue animals. Well, animals rescue people. Mm-hmm. And one of the neat new initiatives we have at our for primary mission, of course, is getting as many dogs and cats into homes as we can. We're also embracing a new um, initiative, Pets for Vets. And there are oh. veterans that are coming home that have issues, you know, whether it's PTSD or other issues. And when we hear from these veterans that these dogs, and, and I will say even cats, for the most part, the vets who we pair with animals, we are pairing with dogs. But a couple of the vets have come in and they've rescued cats. And they come back to us and say, I didn't rescue this animal one fraction as much as this animal rescued me. And I can now go outside again. And I can now engage in life again because I have offered an animal a home who, and this animal has offered me back my life. So adopt, don't shop, and let's just get these dogs and cats loving homes. Yeah, I love that. I, um, I'm a big proponent as well. I worked with um, at a shelter in Massachusetts when I was living up there and worked with the dogs. Um, I have cats at home, as I'm sure you have seen in my Twitter feed. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, I grew up with both, and, um, and working with the dogs was just, it was one of the ways that I think pulled me out of, I was kind of in a fairly bad depression at the time and, and working with those guys um, really helped. And my cats have certainly kept me from spiraling down uh, many, many times with their well funny faces. And, and, what pe- <laughs> and, and what people, you know, sometimes, you know, people who haven't had the, the fortune of, of having animals in their lives, these animals just love us unconditionally. Um, you know, you come home and you've lost a game. They don't care. Right. You know, you're, you're in this miserable, miserable mood. They don't care. They just, they just want to be loved. And I'm not trying to minimize the importance of what we do in our careers or any such thing. Um, but these animals just want to be loved. And okay, we, 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 I, I'm going to start crying in a minute. Um, but pe- they do rescue us every bit as much as we rescue them. So what, um, who do you have at home? Oh, I have made a deal with my husband. He always teases me. Um, we do have a house full of rescue animals, <laughs> but my very, very funny story. I'll digress for one minute before I know we have to run. But um, my husband's very, very, very private. And to the point that at one point um, in a Raider media guide one year, someone in our PR department wrote, you know, Trask is married. She and her husband, and then it said his name, you know, live in. Right. Such and such a place. And I get home, you know, I wake up the next morning and sitting on our kitchen counter is an absolutely hilarious cease and desist letter that my husband (laughs) has sent with a cease and desist from ever using his name in public again. And so I teased our PR department. I'm like, yeah, we got to cease and desist from my husband. We can't use his name publicly. So in that spirit and in that vein, I told him I would never talk about our animals publicly just know we have a house full of rescues oh that's really sweet and hilarious on your husband's end um what uh uh, just a couple real quick questions what do you do by way of self-care um you know i don't know again and and i'm i'm going to answer it as best i can um i'm certainly not looking to punt at all i i just I don't know that anything I do is necessarily deemed self-care by others. Um, I don't do anything, you know, 
I, I don't know that anything I do falls into what people um, refer to as self-care. I, I try to take care of myself. I don't engage in anything formal or ritualistic. I don't do yoga. I don't, um, <laughs> I don't do Pilates. I don't do things of that nature. But I do, um, I do think that I take care of myself, and I think ice cream is a big part of that. You know, ice women cream need is a perfect. lot of calcium. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, look, I, I'm, I'm a happy, happy, happy person. And so whatever I'm doing is working for me, but nothing is particularly by the book. Sure. Sure. Um, and final, what's your favorite Raiders moment? Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I don't think I could articulate one favorite moment. Uh, 30 years of special moments. Thank you to Amy for agreeing to be on the pod. I loved talking to you about animal rescue, the big three, and of course, ice cream. Please make sure you all are subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. Don't forget to send ltpfpod at gmail.com those entries for Amy Trask's book. I'll talk to you all next week. This is a Jim Fannin Show Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Make sure everybody has personal, well-defined goals that the family understands, the family respects, and the family supports. You know, Seth, I, I had the largest junior tennis program in the world at one time in the 70s and early 80s. I trained thousands of instructors in the score system. Tennis was just the vehicle. So I know for sure that four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds understand and can understand the concept of optimism. We made them say the word and told them what it meant. We showed them what someone not optimistic was doing. We showed them what someone that was optimistic, what they were doing. We need to train our children on um, being positive. The Jim Fannin Show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.